Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 32 as we continue our series walking through this book. Um, today, obviously, being uh, a little bit of an uh, exciting day, our church is kind of split, half maybe live, half watching, um, but just a reminder um, to be just praying for us, praying for our leadership, praying for even what's happening as you're watching right now, as we, uh, unless it rains, uh, are having our first gathering on the front lawn. Um, again, uh, every Monday morning at 8 a.m., a new registration form will be sent for the following Sunday. So if you would like to join us on the front lawn next week, uh, be looking at your email tomorrow morning at 8 uh, to sign up. Um, but when I am asked uh, by either somebody who's a believer or not a believer, um, a simple question, um, hey, why do you believe the Bible is true? Why do you believe it's the inspired Word of God? You put a lot of weight into the Bible. What, why? Why is it true? One of the passages I would point to is Exodus 32. Because the Bible does not hide the messy, complicated, um, sometimes irrational behavior of mankind. It does not over-romanticize the fallen world. It doesn't kind of make everything fit into tight, neat boxes as maybe we would expect them to. In short, one of the reasons I believe the Bible is true is because it does not hide the mess. And I think if someone were just making this story up right from beginning to end, it's trying to kind of make something up that would, might start a movement. Um, if they were going to just write something with a hope to persuade to somebody to believe it, the book of Exodus would end after chapter 31. If this were a movie, the end of chapter 31 that we saw last week would be a great ending. Think about it. God has called Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. There was kind of high drama along the way with plagues and this power struggle between Moses and Pharaoh. There's a dramatic crossing of the Red Sea where the enemy was destroyed. There was the initial harsh journey in the wilderness and the question as to whether or not they would survive. And then God provides food and water. And then right at the end, God goes to the top of the mountain where he receives the Ten Commandments. The covenant is confirmed and the instructions of this tabernacle are given. So can you picture it? The final scene. Moses coming down the mountain, tablets in hand, and there to greet him, an entire nation of men, women, and children, eager and grateful for his return. And then the camera kind of pans out, and you just see the credits begin to roll, and we see people in uh, Bezalel and Aholiab just starting with the hammers to construct this tabernacle, and everybody lived happily ever after. Man, I'd pay to see that movie. Even better if it came out on Amazon Prime. But the problem with that is reality. The problem is that Exodus is not over. There's a chapter 32. And let's see what happens. Read the first six verses. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. First, in this kind of tragic chapter, we see the madness of sin. The madness of sin. So the people of Israel are waiting at the base of the mountain. It's been 40 days and 40 nights since they have seen Moses, and they are anxious as to what is causing such a delay. In the phrasing of verse 1, if you look again, that, that the people saw that Moses was delayed. Translation, they saw what they didn't see. And what they do is nothing short of maddening. That they behave in such a way that exposes messy reality of the human heart. Or as John Calvin says, the human heart is an idol factory. And mankind has a bent towards wanting the comfort that false gods offer. And if we're honest, we can relate to this madness of sin. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul writes about this exact moment as he reflected upon Israel coming out of Egypt. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 and 7, then 11. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So thousands of years later, Paul tells this church in the city of Corinth, listen, uh, the times have changed. And, and yes, the gods have changed, but the draw of the sinful heart remains the same. Be careful in thinking to yourself as we read this, man, how ridiculous we would never do that. And in the church in Corinth, they probably were not tempted to make a golden calf and worship it, but they had their own idols to defend against. In Grace Church, in the year 2020, I don't think we're very tempted to make a golden calf and worship it. But we have our idols. The human heart is an idol factory. And so we too are given this story as a means of instruction. And we would do well to pay attention to the pattern of sin laid out in the first six verses here. We see, we see um, first that sin is disobedience. Sin is disobedience. In declaring the intent to make gods, they break the first and in many ways the most important commandment that God gave them. That you shall have no other gods before me. And when it says that, that it doesn't mean before him in the sense that they can have gods after him, but you shall have no other gods before my presence, meaning ever. And yet at the first sign of trouble, many of them return back to what they knew, to the polygamous culture of Egypt that was filled with thousands of gods. And so when Moses delayed, and they got confused, and they got anxious, and they said, quick, let's go, let's make gods like we know how. 
It proves true that you can take Israel out of Egypt, but it's harder to take Egypt out of Israel. Author Os Guinness says that, quote, idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible. And this sin is not about a golden calf, because they would have taken anything at this point. It was about the human heart and its search for security and for control. That that is what an idol is. Not just a shrine. An idol is putting something or someone in place of God in our life that we think will provide more joy, more security, more control, more meaning, more significance. Idolatry is about the heart, and it can and does exist everywhere at all times. In the past couple weeks, we talked about how the tabernacle and Sabbath were returned to Eden, in a sense, to to God's covenant relationship with His people. But, But now, the golden calf is a return to the fall. The choice of exchanging God's glory for lesser things in the name of power and control and desire. You see, the, the problem of idolatry then in the church of Corinth and now is not that our loves are too big, but that they are too small. It's not that we love other things too much, it's that we love God too little. It's the madness of sin that we disobey God with the very minds, hearts, and bodies that He generously gave to us to glorify Him with. But second, sin is also distrust. Look again at the end of verse number one in your Bible. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Do you see what's happening? Just the, the, the great unknown began to just bear down on them. <clears throat> Excuse me. And in, as a result, in the moment, they broke. This is not how they envisioned things going. Why would Moses be gone for this long? What could possibly explain the amount of time that he has spent up there? Surely something happened to him. Surely we would be foolish just to keep waiting and trusting that he'll just return. They were overwhelmed by the immediacy of the present problem. They could not remember the promises of God in the midst of the unknown. If Moses is gone, then God must be too. And they can no longer trust God who was who He said He was, or or that God will do what He said He would do. Last week, as part of the digital service, one of our elders, Tom Hines, prayed, And he had an honest confession that really just stood out to me in the moment. And I thought about it when preparing this sermon. He said, quote, Oh Lord, my biggest sin is that I don't always trust your plan for me. Did anyone else just give a quiet amen in that moment? How quickly the problems we face in the moment just seem so large and so significant and that we are just prone to wander from God's promises and struggle to trust His Word over our lives. The Christian life is a life of struggle in many ways. Every Christian is a struggling Christian in some ways. 
And so it's not that we're just going to perfectly trust Him. We need to feel guilt and shame in those moments that we have to struggle because those are always going to happen. But what are we going to do in the midst of that struggle? When life takes unexpected turns, it has this kind of revealing effect. It kind of exposes some things. It exposes what we are tempted to put our trust in. We as a nation, and certainly as a church, have been in this, I don't know, predicament for four months now and counting. The unexpected has happened on 20, in 2020 on so many levels, and the future, even now, is about as clear as a river filled with mud. And so the question remains, will we trust that in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of massive civil unrest, that God is who he said he is? And then third, sin is distortion. Moses is uh, number two in command. Is his half-brother, Aaron. And Aaron, he's got a rough day here. He's got a rough moment. Up to this point in the book of Exodus, he has represented himself pretty well in Exodus. Even while Moses was shown to be kind of up and down at times, Aaron has kind of seemed to be this kind of steady force the entire way. Almost like, um, almost like you'd even consider naming your son after him. It'd be a good idea. But alas, my parents, many other parents, must have just skipped over chapter 32 in their Bible reading plan. Because people come to him, no doubt pressuring and groaning to him like they groaned to Moses. And, and did Aaron cry out to the Lord for help? Did he remain strong and tell them, no, guys, remember all of God's promises up to this point. He has never let you down. No. He becomes complicit. He invited them to bring and contribute rings and earrings to make a graving tool. And then he handcrafted a golden calf and the people pronounced to Israel, hey, these are your gods. But if that's not bad enough, they didn't just worship a false god. They distorted their worship of the one true God. You notice they pronounce, Behold, your God Israel, this is the true God who rescued out you out of Egypt. And then Aaron built an altar like Moses had done for God. And then he announces a feast to the golden calf like Moses had done with the Passover. And he even says, It will be a feast to the Lord. Look at your Bibles. Look at the way Lord is spelled. It's capitalized. We know what that means now. That's the name, Yahweh. The name that Exodus gave to God in Exodus 3.14 when he said, I am the great I am. That's the Lord that Aaron ascribes to this idol. They distorted worship by doing everything their way, not God's way. That's what sin does. It exchanges God's word with our word because then we get to call the shots. On these verses, R.C. Sproul noted that God gave no law. This God, this false God, gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It cannot intrude upon their fun and call them to judgment. And so they ate and they drank and they rose up to play. And they lived it up, and they traded it all in. This is the madness of sin. 
Let's see what happens. Verse 7 through 14. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Number two, the reaction to sin. So just as Moses gives the two tablets to, just as God gives Moses the two tablets, he says, oh, um, hey, by the way, you should go down and see your people. They've corrupted themselves. They've turned aside from me, and they're worshiping other gods. God, obviously not surprised about this. I'm sure Moses was, though. Shocked, even. And then God clearly, plainly declares, these people are a stiff-necked people. Meaning that in their sin, they are arrogant, and they're self-seeking, and they just admit, refuse to admit any wrongdoing, and, and they always give themselves a pass for the way they behave. This is a sign of a depraved heart. Not just rebellion, but, but never really taking ownership of it. Kind of always letting themselves off the hook. Just, just quick to justify themselves, right? Well, if you only had my life, if you only had to see what I had to go through, how hard the situation it is with my family, or my coworkers, or my friends at school, how much pressure that I'm under all the time. Hey, walk a day in my shoes. We should never downplay someone's situation, especially the hard ones. But there is no right way to do the wrong thing. There's never a justification for disobeying God where God would say, yeah, you know what? Whew, you had the card stacked against you there. You know what? You're right. Let's, let's let this one go. That's, that's a tough spot you're in. It's never the case. And God says, now let me be that I would consume them and then make a great nation out of you, Moses. A lot of things happening here. But what's not happening is, not, is God's not having a grumpy, angry, angry God moment, right? Where, where Moses needs to kind of coax him down. But God, in his, he's indicating, even in his righteous anger, that his grace will cover the sins of the people. Because God is in this moment both inviting Moses to intercede and testing Moses at the same time. God makes space and room for Moses to cry out on, to him on behalf of those who are guilty of sin. And, and then there's the, the small test. He, he says to Moses, hey, I'm going to wipe them clean and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. You will be the forefather. But Moses 
intercedes and says, remember Abraham, the plan that was given to him and to Isaac and to Jacob. He recounts God's character. He intercedes in prayer for Israel. And when it says God relented, it doesn't mean God changed His mind. That you had angry God who was, again, talked down by Moses and then says, okay, fine, I won't kill them all. Because God did not change His mind here because God never changes His mind. So in this moment, God did not change the plan. He providentially carried out His plan through the intercession of Moses. And to prove it, um, it would be years later in Moses' final address to the nation of Israel um, in the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses recounts this moment in Deuteronomy 10.10 when he says, I myself stayed on the mountain as the first time, 40 days and 40 nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. The Lord, despite your sin and rebellion, was unwilling to destroy you. And he used the prayer and intercession from Moses. Just as a side note, if you want to do a study on the power of intercessory prayer, man, just dig into these verses in Exodus 32. Because a right understanding of God's character, a right understanding of His sovereignty, will make you want to pray more, not less. Because God, in His sovereign design, uses the prayers of His people to bring about His gracious will on others' souls. Third, we see the consequences of sin. We don't have time to read verses 15 to 29, but to sum it up, Moses then comes down the mountain, tablets in hand, and we read that his basically top general, Joshua, was halfway up the mountain this entire time waiting for him. And as the two of them come to the base of the mountain, Joshua starts hearing all this commotion, and he goes, Moses, do you hear that? It sounds like war down there. Something is going on, something big. And Moses, knowing what he knows, says in return, that's not war. That's singing. That's worship we hear. It's tragic. But it shows that worship is not just a Christian thing. It's not just a church thing. It's a person thing. The question is not if you will worship something or someone, but what or who you decide to worship. And today, in 2020, in our celebrity-crazed world, we kind of know this more than ever. We are created to worship. And idolatry focuses on worship of people over and above God. Worship of things over and above God. But everybody worships. It's so clear, now more than ever. Moses is angry. Moses will discipline Israel out of his own righteous anger for people's rebellion against God. But this chapter tells us, amongst other things, that sin does have consequences. And the reason sin has consequences is because sin does real damage in this world. Sin tears apart. It separates. That's what sin does. It separates us from God. It separates us from one another when we sin against one another. And while forgiveness does remove the guilt of sin, it does not necessarily remove it of its temporal consequences. We may be truly repentant of our sin, 
but we still need to face the consequences. If, if, if somebody in ministry, let's say even a pastor would disqualify himself from ministry in some way, that pastor can be truly sorry, truly repentant before God and their people, can be forgiven even by their church, but it does not mean that that pastor should be reinstated to ministry right away, or maybe ever, depending on the gravity of the sin. It's the same with church discipline amongst the church, members to one another, elders carrying it out. It's, it's corrective, but it's done in such a way to restore a brother and sister to Christ. But sin has consequences. And it seems that many in Israel not only have sinned here, but they have no remorse. So Moses will first burn the calf to the ground, put the powder of that calf into water, and have Israel drink it. And you know what? We're not even told why. It's a power move by Moses, but at the very least, it has them physically taste the bitterness of sin. And then Moses will call his half-brother Aaron out. And Aaron, in the most ridiculous response, will fail to own up to his sin. Instead, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, he, he just blame shifts. He says, well, what did you expect me to do, Moses? You, you left me down here with all these people. You didn't, you didn't come back. You disappeared. And he proceeds to recount what happened with revisionist history. With, with, with a version of the story that makes him seem less complicit than he was. They, they just came up to me. They gave me all this jewelry. I ended up just throwing it in the fire and, and boom, out came this golden calf. Come on, Aaron. The worst thing we can do when being confronted with our sin by either the Spirit within us or by others outside of us is to fail to take ownership, to water it down, shift the blame. And then Moses calls out to Israel and asks this powerful question. Who is on the Lord's side? He draws a line. He says, you're either for God or against him. There's no hanging out in the middle. There's no foot in both worlds. It doesn't work. Who is on the Lord's side? And the only ones who come forward are the Levites. To which, and many people forget about this in Exodus 32, he tells them to go cut down 3,000 men in Israel. It's a harsh command to our modern ears. We can't imagine that punishment, but it elevates the seriousness of sin. That those who reject God sin, and the wages of sin is death. So that day, 3,000 men accounts for 0.5% of the male population in Israel, and likely are the ones who were most complicit in making this false god and pressuring others to worship it, died. But Moses goes back up the mountain, and we're going to finish with this passage. These final verses, verses 30 to 35. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day that when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague to the people, 
because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Last, we see a substitute for sin. Moses goes up and he now intercedes a second time after seeing the destruction and the depth of Israel's sin with his own eyes. It was probably worse than he could have even imagined. And yet on his mind is atonement, the payment and substitute for their sin. He is angry and upset, but even more than that, he is heartbroken over the sin of his people because he loves them. They're his people, and he can't bear the thought of them being cut off from God by their sin. So he asks God to forgive them, but here's the kicker. He offers himself as a substitute. Blot me out of your book that you have written. Take me out of the book. Put them back in. I will sacrifice myself. In a lot of ways, Moses shows in this moment, maybe more than ever before in the book of Exodus, that he gets it. That in order for sin to be forgiven, there must be blood shed. There has to be a substitute. There cannot be peace with God without justice being carried out by God. Nevertheless, it says, God rejected his proposal. God says, no, Moses. They're going to have to pay for their sin. Now go take your people away. Why did God say no? The reason is because that while Moses got it in many ways, He didn't understand one important thing. Moses could not be that substitute. He wasn't the one. He's an extraordinary figure. He's a good leader, but he's merely human. He wasn't perfect. He too was a sinner. And so that his death could not atone for the sin of others. And from this point on, the Bible continues its search for the one who could. And the story will proceed throughout the lenses of the nation of Israel for a couple more thousand years, full of ups and downs, until the story finds itself on a starry night in the town of Bethlehem where a child was born and his name was Jesus. God knew that Moses could not do what only he could. And that is to take on flesh, fully human and fully God, and then go to the cross to atone for the sin of those who would repent of their sin and believe in him. Exodus 32 is a tragic chapter, and yet it proves to be a snapshot of the gospel itself. The bad news is worse than you thought, but the good news is even better than you could have ever imagined. That man sins in rebellion against God, and God, who is rich in mercy, does not consume them, but provides a mediator to intercede and atone for their sin. And the only way to be redeemed, to be saved from sin that deserves death, is by believing in the only one who could atone for that sin, Jesus Christ, who 
laid down his life for his people. So while the end of the movie of Exodus did not happen in chapter 31, it won't end with Moses coming down the mountain and the people living happily ever after. But we do know that the story will end with Jesus coming down from on high, finally and completely bringing all things in this world to an end, ushering in the new heavens and the new earth, and that ending will last for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Uh, even hard chapters in the Bible, even ones that we need to confront some of the idols that occur in our own lives, Lord. But I pray that it does not stop there. That that sin and the madness of it that we can even feel in our own lives would lead us to the cross, would lead us to the one who atoned for that sin, who washed us clean, who puts us in right standing with you, and then who equips us and empowers us by your Spirit to walk in your ways. So Lord, let us follow you with confidence and humility and a desire to consistently and completely pursue the fight to put idols to death in our life, Lord, knowing that we can, and it won't be perfect, but we'll be progressively growing in our ability to do so for your glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.